The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. And the rest of us will go ahead and go to God's Word. There's a, you got a bulletin there with a lot of space where you can write whatever you want and draw your own map, or you can use that little thing if you picked up one of those that was provided. I was not going to have notes, but then as I was putting it all together, I realized, wow, in the introduction... You gotta have a map. So at the 11th hour, I put out a map if you want to use that. Some of you have maps in your Bible if you want to use that as well. Because we will talk about where Corinth is located in our introduction. Because it is important. It's very location made for, provided for the constitution of the people that composed Corinth and its personality and their lifestyles. And that played into everything. So it is very significant in terms of where it was located. And we'll talk about that. So let's go ahead and follow along. And we will be in Corinthians. You can have your... That'll be the main place we'll be in 1 Corinthians. Actually, go there now, if you will. And if you have one of those old-school, archaic Bibles like that has material pages, as opposed to one of those newfangled electronic things where you can't really flip through the pages, uh, the first thing I was going to actually have you do is go to 1 Corinthians. Try to find it. It's in the New Testament. So in the latter half of your Bible, and then when you find 1 Corinthians, I want you to actually look at chapter 1 and then keep thumbing through to the end, just so you get an idea of how long it is. Sometimes we need to go back to the very basics of just learning our Bible, because not everybody has had that opportunity and privilege to get an overview and survey of the Bible and books of the Bible. As a matter of fact, if you've never been through Corinthians in a thorough study from all 16 chapters, can you just raise your hand real quick if you've never had a thorough comprehensive? So that's a lot of folks. So it's a great privilege to go through Corinthians. I've read Corinthians, studied Corinthians, uh, did a project in seminary, uh, advanced Greek exegesis of a portion of Corinthians, but uh, I've taught survey on Corinthians, but I've never preached through it verse by verse. So I was really looking forward to doing that because it's an incredibly intriguing book, but also a really practical book. And we're going to see why in many different respects. Uh, so let's go ahead. So today is Introduction to 1 Corinthians. And I'm actually going to be following the written outline that I came up with there on seven points that I want to highlight there. And then we'll be looking at a couple different passages along the way. Uh, but we're going to start with this book that's 16 chapters. Uh, the author is the Apostle Paul. We're getting real basic here. Uh, 1 Corinthians. How do I know that Paul wrote Corinthians. Well, because in 1 Corinthians, the first word in my English Bible says Paul. Paul. And Paul wrote 13 epistles that we know of. Paul usually did that. Paul. Not every writer or author in Paul's day would identify themselves. Many writings, formal writings, would be anonymous. It's true of most of the Old Testament books, by the way. The author never identifies himself. In the New Testament, uh, Paul identified himself all 13 times, and so... The church has believed for 2,000 years that Paul wrote Corinthians. Just so you know, in the academic world, even in the Christian academic world, it is more and more uh, scholars are becoming more and more inclined to deny Pauline authorship of books like Corinthians. Because apparently that's like the scholarly thing to do. Just question everything that has always been held to be true for 2,000 years. And I've got a PhD and I'm really smart and I go to this prestigious university. Therefore, Paul maybe didn't write Corinthians. I am not kidding. So you can pick up commentaries and... The 13 epistles that we thought Paul wrote, if you want to be really smart, you have to deny that Paul wrote it, even though it says right here, Paul. So 
Uh, for me, I just like to simplify it. I think this is God's word. Uh, we take it at face value. Paul identifies himself as the author. As a matter of fact, uh, four times in this epistle, and I put it there for you, 1 Corinthians verse 1, chapter 4, verse 9, chapter 9, verse 1, chapter 15, verse 9, four times in this letter, he refers to himself as Paul. So Paul wrote Corinthians, end of story. So who wrote it? Paul. And then I put the apostle, very important. The apostle. I put a capital A there because uh, there were two kinds of apostles in the New Testament. There were the capital A apostles and then the small a apostles. Apostolos, the Greek word, a sent one, an emissary, an ambassador, a formal representative of someone else. Paul was a formal representative with the capital A of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he functioned in his office, his role, his capacity, his giftedness as an apostle, he literally spoke for God with that binding authority. It's amazing. Now, as an apostle, Paul didn't always speak with binding authority. He wasn't always inspired in everything that he said or everything that he wrote. But what has been preserved is Scripture for us. We know this was authoritative proclamation on behalf of Paul the spokesman for God and Jesus Christ himself as an apostle. Jesus trained 12 guys to be his apostles during his three-year ministry. Judas was the betrayer and committed suicide. And Jesus said Judas was never a believer from the beginning. And Jesus knew that. Old Testament scripture predicted that. And they replaced Judas in Acts early on with Matthias. And so Matthias came the 12th. Apostle, one of the qualifications, key qualifications to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ with a capital A was that you had to be an eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, literally, physically saw him. I have never seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. I could never be an apostle. Another qualification of an apostle from New Testament times was you had to be with the Lord Jesus Christ and around him in his ministry since the days of John the Baptist because that's what Peter said was a qualification. And so that's how they were able to choose Matthias to replace Judas. Those became the 12 apostles, so Judas doesn't count. Then a little later on, there was a special apostle that God brought, and that was Saul of Tarsus. Saul was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was an amazing leading Pharisee. He hated Christians. He hated Jesus. He hated the gospel. He tortured and persecuted Christians for a while, and then God got a hold of him and shook him and brought him to his knees and Saul of Tarsus repented and believed in Jesus Christ. And the apostle, or Saul actually saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ in his physical, glorious resurrection body, which I have never seen. And Jesus Christ handpicked and selected the Apostle Paul to be one of his capital A apostles in addition to the twelve. And Scripture makes it clear that Paul was chosen to be a unique apostle. Those other 12 guys would focus on the Jews in their ministry, and Paul would be called to focus on the Gentile world. And so he was came to be known as the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he was the 13th apostle with a capital A. And after those 13 guys died and went to heaven, there were no more apostles in the history of the church. In the book of Acts, it does refer to other apostles with a small a, James and Barnabas and other guys. And that's just, they were formal representatives of the church, but not apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were actually apostles of the churches. 
And it was kind of a lesser role. And as far as we know, they didn't speak authoritatively the way the apostles did. And they also didn't have some of these unique, amazing, supernatural, spiritual gifts that the apostles wielded to validate their amazing apostolic ministry. So Paul was one of these very rare, unique apostles that literally spoke for Jesus Christ. And as a result, Paul was privileged to write 13 epistles, which is a big chunk of your New Testament. came from the hand of the Apostle Paul as the Holy Spirit of God moved on his heart. So you need to know that 1 Corinthians, all 16 chapters, yes, written by the human Paul. Yes, Paul was a sinner. Yes, Paul wasn't infinite and always perfect. But what he wrote in Corinthians for 16 chapters is the very word of God, is the mind of God in print. It is without error. It is binding, is authoritative. It is historic. It is accurate. It is not to be questioned. It is to be obeyed. It is the living word of God and it is life-changing. It transcends all time, all culture, all problems, all people. It's amazing. The living word of God. And so this book that we're looking at, even though it's 2,000 years old, is just as fresh relevant, pertinent, life-changing from the day that it came from the pen of Paul. It's amazing. This is the Word of God. This is not a human book. This is God's book. And so that needs to be the attitude as we look through Corinthians. We need to, as a Christian in a sensitive, obedient heart, bow the knee to what it says when we come to understand what it says. Not question it, but be softened by it, to be fed by it, to apply it to our lives. Why? Because the Apostle Paul was the one that wrote this book. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ, as an authoritative representative of Almighty Lord Jesus Christ Himself by the will of God. When we're reading 1 Corinthians, we are reading the very will of God. Can't be any more emphatic. Why are you going on and on and haranguing, Pastor Cliff? Well, let me give you one reason why. It's becoming more and more popular even in the evangelical and Christian world, to question Scripture. Or even question the authority of the Apostle Paul. Or even formally to say, well, there are some times when Scripture where it says Paul was just giving his opinion and we don't have to obey that passage. And So I just want to show you two passages where that is routinely done. And it's illegitimate. First go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. As a matter of fact, somebody who graduated from a seminary and has an MDiv told me this uh, in this past year. Not not in this church. Nobody you know. We were just having a discussion, talking about different things, and they they believed some weird things, and they were formally educated in Greek and Hebrew and seminary and an MDiv, and actually had some really good seminary professors uh, at a different seminary than I went to. And we, we got to 1 Corinthians 7. Actually, they just started quoting from 1 Corinthians 7 out of the blue. I don't even remember what the topic was. And so they quoted 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10 and verse 12. And their argument was, well, you know, the Apostle Paul, oh, I know what it was. Uh, I was telling them, well, Paul said this. And then their response, well, Paul's not always right. You know, sometimes Paul made mistakes. I was like, whoa, really? Yeah, sometimes he just gives his opinion and we don't have to heed it. For example, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul just gave his opinion. We don't have to believe it. So here's what he was talking about. And this is very common. This has been a lie that's been perpetuated for decades. First uh, Corinthians 7.10 says this. Paul's talking to singles and married couples. And when you're trying to figure out whether you should get married or not or remain single and do you have the gift or not. And in verse 10, uh, but to the married, I give instructions. Not I, but the Lord. 
What I'm about to say comes from God and it is inspired and it is binding and it is scriptural and you need to obey. This command is not ultimately for me, it's from God. And that the command is that the wife should not leave her husband. So what Paul's saying is, God says you should not divorce your spouse. Authoritative, binding scripture. Two verses later. So the argument goes, then they say, well, but in verse 10, verse 12, Paul just gives his opinion and we don't really have to obey that. It's not authoritative. Because look, it's just his opinion. Verse 12, but to the rest I say, not the Lord. See that? But to the rest, I, Paul, Paul the guy, I'm just giving you my opinion. This is not authoritative binding scripture. This doesn't come from God. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, unlike verse 10, where it came from the Lord. And then say, see, there's one example of Paul just giving his opinion where you don't have to obey that verse. That's just his opinion. He wasn't speaking authoritatively. It goes on. Yeah, here's just my opinion. You don't have to heed it. It's not from Jesus. It's not from God. And here's my opinion, that if any brother has a wife who uh, is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. So that's just my opinion. But, you know, I'm not Jesus. Well, that's wrong. The correct interpretation is very simple. In verse 10, Paul is letting us know he is quoting Jesus from the Gospels. Because that is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew, verse 10. Do not get divorced. I say to you, I'm telling, I'm reminding you, but actually, this is not new information. Jesus the Lord said this, and Christian, you should know that. If you have the Gospels, that's why, that's what he's saying in verse 10. In verse 12, what Paul is saying when he says, I say not the Lord. He said, I'm not quoting Jesus anymore. As a matter of fact, Jesus never talked about this truth. And I will challenge you, search Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You will not find the, the, the truth of verse 12 in chapter 7 anywhere in the four Gospels. Why? It is new information. It is new revelation. It's a new situation. And that is what Paul did many times. He came along and he brought new revelation that nobody had ever heard before. That's why he was a unique apostle. And that's why Peter, the head apostle, who was with Jesus for three years, is often scratching his head as he is reading Paul's epistle, saying, Wait a minute, I never heard this. Jesus never said that. Now, who does Paul think he is? Paul, you he is confusing. I don't understand the sovereignty stuff or this eschatology stuff that Paul's always talking about. And so that was Peter's testimony in Second Peter. So that would be one example where routinely Paul's authority is undermined as an apostle. Uh, another place that Paul is routinely undermined. First, go to 1 Corinthians 14. Look at verse 36, 34. This is one of the most, this has got to be one of the scariest, most controversial verses in the entire Bible, especially in the day in which we live and especially in the culture and city where we live. You read this, duck, because people might start throwing rocks at you. So the argument goes, you could take 1 Corinthians 14, you could take 1 Timothy 2 as another one, where they say, ah, oh, you know, some of the things that Paul says, they were just cultural. They were temporary. They applied in Paul's day, but they don't apply today. And this would be one of those passages where they would say that. So they relativize the text or contextualize the text. By the way, that's a bad, naughty word, contextualization. That is not a good thing. And so here they say, yeah, this, this was true in Paul's day, but it's not true anymore because this had to do with his culture. It was only for the time. It is not transcend time. This would never fly in America today or California or San Francisco. And what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 34? Well, Paul gives this injunction to the church. The women, okay, ladies, hold on to your hats or your high heels or whatever. 
the women are to keep silent in the churches. Whoa. Don't get mad at me. I didn't make it up. I'm just reading it. I'm not even interpreting it yet. We'll get to that. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. And if the women desire to learn anything, then let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Talk about controversial. Well, what is Paul saying there? Well, we'll talk about it later. But the point is, it is common today to say, see, Paul, here's, if you read a lot of commentaries by so-called Christians and even conservative evangelicals on this passage, they will say, well, what you need to understand, you need to understand the historical context. Uh, the church viewed women differently 2,000 years ago than we do today. And also, you got to understand Paul. As a matter of fact, some of them just outright say Paul didn't like women. He was a misogynist. He hated women. He couldn't get a date. Blah, blah, blah. He hated his mother. I mean, just, it's, you just read that stuff. It's like, where are you getting this stuff? I am not kidding. I'm not exaggerating. So, going back to point number one, Paul. He is the author. He is an apostle. First Corinthians, all 16 chapters, equally authoritative. When did he write it? Number two. Uh, date written, A.D. 55. 55 A.D. Which, by the way, makes this one of the earliest of the 27 books of the New Testament. It is the fourth earliest one that Paul wrote out of his 13. Uh, he wrote it on his third missionary journey when he was in Ephesus at the end of his Ephesus ministry. Number three, what is the theme of this book? Well, you could say a lot of things, but here is one that a commentator said years ago, and a lot of people have repeated it, and I think it's really good. kind of nails it. Uh, the doctrine of the cross in its social application. The doctrine of the cross, and all that that means, the Lord Jesus Christ, His death, His resurrection, and living life, and the reality of the, cry, the cross, and the crucified Savior, and the gospel. Uh, that's the theme of Corinthians. So Paul takes the doctrine of the cross and kind of applies it to all the problems in the church in Corinth. That all of their solutions can be found inevitably in the gospel and in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that as we go through uh, chapter by chapter. By the way, in terms of, I'm talking about the theme, I'm talking about the theology of Corinthians. As we confront the book of Corinthians, it's got some theological challenges. Uh, some of the top ones, I would think, there are just point blank some things in Corinthians I do not understand. So you'll probably be greatly disappointed when we get there. Uh, one I think of that's very controversial and cryptic is 1 Corinthians 15, and it refers to the baptism of the dead. Hey, Pastor Cliff, what does that mean? I have no idea. I have been studying it for 27 years in the Greek text. I don't know what it means. I have no idea what the baptism of the dead is. Just so you know, in the 1830s and 40s, when the Mormon church started, they developed an entire very important doctrine based on that little cryptic phrase, and now they have the doctrine of the baptism of the dead that is at the very core of their faith and their religion. And it's highly developed and systematized and has been expanded over... 150 years, and that would be their proof text. But when you ask me, I, I don't know what Paul is talking about. No idea. Uh, another one that's very challenging is at 1 Corinthians 11, that head veil, ladies covering their head thing. Man, that, that is difficult. When I was in seminary, I had Greek class, I took Greek in college, and then I took Greek in seminary, and then in the, in the Greek class, Greek exegesis, you had to pick a passage no, you didn't have to pick it. You were assigned it. That's how that worked. That's how I got the, the raw deal. 
we were assigned a passage by the New Testament Greek professor, and we had all semester we had to work on that passage, resolve it, develop a thesis paper, study all that. And I got dealt First Corinthians 11, the head veil, ladies' head covering problem. And after an entire semester and reading about 55 commentaries in the Greek text, I concluded I have no idea what Paul's talking about here. And then I studied it and taught on it, First Corinthians, different times. And, and here it is like 25 years later. I still don't know what Paul's talking about in First Corinthians 11. And when we get there, I don't know what he's talking about. But we'll talk about it anyway. It is incredibly challenging. And you just go to the commentaries and you've got 12 different views. I'll tell you, I mean, there are principles that we can take away that are very clear there. But in terms of the nuances and the details and the intriguing things that people want to know about the, the head veil thing, there's just some stuff we don't know. It's too cryptic. Uh, God didn't give us all the information. You're focusing on the wrong thing. We need to focus on the right thing because the main principle in 1 Corinthians 11 is clear as day. So we will come away with that principle to apply to life. We won't be distracted by things we don't need to know. God hides things from us for His glory. That's what Scripture says. For His glory. To, to remind us He is smarter than we are. Isn't that a good reminder? I, I like a God like that. So those, and then you get, oh, and then we get the spiritual gift section, 12 through 14. Very challenging. Very divisive in the history of the church since the 1960s. Very divisive. Not as divisive today on a broad scale, but still can be very divisive. And the one thing I don't understand there is the gift of the word of knowledge. To this day, I don't know what that is, what it means, when it was used in the New Testament. Do I have it or not? Some of my relatives tell me I don't have the gift of knowledge. But anyway. Or the word of wisdom, that's the more specific terminology. I have no idea what that is. The word of wisdom. Uh, can guess and speculate and commentators give their opinions. So that's just a few things. Uh, speaking of 1 Corinthians again, don't say it out loud, but when you hear 1 Corinthians, what are some of the main things that come to your mind? Don't speak it out, but in your mind. Because <laughs> I was going to give you a list. Let you think it through. But since you did say love, here's a list. That may, may, here's some topics maybe you would have thought. 1 Corinthians, division, okay, I'm a pessimist, at least this week, uh, troubled, I think of a troubled, rocky church, betrayers, they turned on Paul, their pastor, charismatic, in a legitimate sense, because they had the spiritual gifts, even the, the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues was legitimate, uh, legitimately given, just not legitimately practiced all the time in their church. I think of communion. I don't know if you realize this. Every time we have communion once a month, I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 11. So we're in 1 Corinthians all the time as a church. I think of love, 1 Corinthians 13. That should be on every Christian's wall at home. The whole, the whole chapter. Just an unbelievable, supernaturally inspired treatise on love. I think of the resurrection. It's got the most exhaustive, detailed explication of the doctrine of the bodily resurrection anywhere in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, it is mammoth, it is amazing. And then finally, the gospel. When I think of 1 Corinthians, I think of gospel. Because there is nowhere else in the entire Bible where an explicit definition of the gospel is given. Other than 1 Corinthians 15, when I ask people, in the simplest terms, distill it down as you simply can without compromise, what is the gospel? You should be repeating Here's what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, Now I make known to you the gospel. What is it? Here it is. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. All the main components are there. They're not fleshed out, but they are there. 
That is the gospel. It's all about Christ, who he is and what he did. So that's just kind of a survey overview of the main themes that I think of when we're talking about 1 Corinthians. So let's move on. Paul's the author, written in AD 55. Uh, The theme is the doctrine of the cross applied in social application. Number four, tell you a little bit about the city of Corinth. Well, it was the largest city in first century Greece, Corinth. Raise your hand if you have ever been to Corinth. Um, I, I knew we had some. There's some right here, and there's another couple in our church that has been there recently. They were telling me about it, showing me pictures. Uh, kind of cool. So it is a place that you can visit and check out. And uh, Bruce, was there a living human being there when you were there? Was there anybody actually living in Corinth? No? Okay. Uh, so I read a couple of different sources. I have not been to Corinth, but uh, some said that the city is kind of desolate, and others say that there are actually people living in pockets of Corinth. Uh, nothing like in Paul's day when there was up to half a million people in terms of the population in Corinth. So it was the largest city uh, down in that area. 500,000 people. That's huge for a, a city that existed 2,000 uh, 2, years ago. Largest of the city. It was the capital of Achaia. So you've got Greece is divided into two chunks in Bible times. Down in the south was Achaia. It was kind of the island part in the south. And then the northern part was Macedonia. Those were the two main divisions of what we would call modern-day Greece. And so down in the south was Achaia. And that the capital city was the city of Corinth right on the coast. Uh, the city is on an isthmus. That's hard to pronounce fast five times. Isthmus. Uh, so it's this very narrow, long body of land, uh, anywhere, about like five miles wide that extends and connects lower Greece to upper Greece, connects Achaia to Macedonia, and just right on the hub where that isthmus begins, right on the water there, was the city of Corinth. So Corinth was a port city right on the sea, actually connecting two seas, one on the left, one on the right, uh, the Aegean Sea and the Adriatic Sea in Paul's day. And so anything being shipped and going from Asia over to Rome had to pass through or near or close by uh, Greece and some many times going right through the city of Corinth. And so if you looked at your map, you can see the strategic location of Corinth right there on that little isthmus thing that connects those two huge land masses that separates those two seas. And so you've got uh, all these important ships bringing trade and everything else and materials uh, east and west from Asia to Rome and Rome back to Asia. And many times, instead of going around Greece, down by the bottom where it was very dangerous and 250 miles out of your way, the shortcut would be to go up there between Athens and Corinth and go over and land on one of the ports in the city of Corinth. And then you had this five-mile land bridge where they would literally take their ships and pull them out of the water and put them on rollers and roll it through town for five miles and then plop it in the other sea on the other side. That is hard, arduous work. Four to five miles. But if you didn't want to do that, then you would have to sail 250 miles in torturous, deadly waters around the coast. So most opted for the shortcut, and we're going to just roll our ship, or we're going to transfer transfer all of our cargo into another ship that is waiting over there. And as a result, that's why this, this city was hustling and bustling all the time with activity and people and travelers and uh, merchandise and just constantly nonstop. As a result, you have all these people living there and exposed to all kinds of different cultures coming from all over the world. And as a result, it was a cosmopolitan city, a diverse city with Jews and Greeks and Romans and Eastern peoples and 
from all over the world, bringing everything with them, their culture, their language, their beliefs, their religion, their politics. And what you ended up with was a hodgepodge of people with great diversity and tolerance and at the same time great immorality. Very much like a modern-day San Francisco, really. And Corinth was known for being an immoral city even by unbelievers. That's how bad it was. A Corinthian woman. Well, that was a stigma for a prostitute who was pretty lowly. Or to Corinthianize, to commit an act of sexual, gross sexual immorality. Those were bywords that were common in Paul's day that speak of the nature of Corinth as a city itself. Um, so that is the city. By the way, just a couple other things on the city of Corinth. Uh, the capital, it was destroyed by the Romans in about 146, but then Julius Caesar built it up again in 46 B.C. and continued to thrive on into Paul's day a hundred years later. Um, just a lot of ruins do remain today. Inscriptions remain today. You can go there. There have been archaeological discoveries that validate the Bible is right on in terms of its history and what it says about Corinth from an inscription of this guy named Erastus who was significant in the city of Corinth. And Paul referred to Erastus as significant in three different chapter, or three different Bible books. Erastus from Corinth, and there it is uh, today. It exists in written and engraved in limestone, about 2,000 years old, corresponding to the very time and location the Bible said the Bible is accurate. It is without error. Uh, that's most of, uh, but, oh, one other thing that in Paul's day, uh, Corinth was dominated by Roman laws, culture, and religion because it was a province of, or under the rule of Rome. But it had a fair mix of Hellenization, hence their language. The language of the day was Greek, or the trade language. Uh, but probably the most important thing is it was, it was a religious city and it was a pagan city and much of their religion had to do with sexual immorality. It had a, huge temple in it, the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, where they had a hundred female priestesses and uh, the religious practice was sexual immorality. Uh, so it was rampant, the debauchery, the compromise, the sin, the wickedness, uh, eclipsing maybe what is going on in America today, especially on television. This is really something that we can relate to, this terrible, wicked, sinful, compromised City And so that's why I put on there D, the city of Corinth. It was pagan to the core. All kinds of religion, but false religion. And then finally we said it was very cosmopolitan, just a huge mix in terms of the diversity of people there. Uh, number five, the church of Corinth. So uh, the church is established by Paul on his second missionary journey. They say he had four missionary journeys traced out in Acts. On the second one, he goes into Corinth and starts preaching and plants his church. Uh, he was in Corinth, be uh, there for 18 months, according to Acts 18, so we'll look at that in a second. Once Paul founded this church, so he goes into the city of Corinth. It's an evil, wicked city. His routine since he began his ministry, since he was Jewish and a recognized rabbi, he had all rights and privileges, even though he was now a Christian, he had rights and privileges as a Jew when he went into a city to be the guest speaker at the synagogue. And if a city was big enough and had a high enough concentration of Jews, then they would establish a synagogue and Paul would go in and he would 
preach as the guest preacher in the synagogue. And that is exactly what he did uh, on his second missionary journey as he went to all these cities. He went to Philippi and he's preaching and he gets arrested and beat up and tortured and chased out of town. And so then he goes to the next town and they Thessalonica and they beat him up and chase him. Or they didn't beat him up, but they chased him out of town. They wanted to beat him up. Then he goes to Berea and there's a warm reception and he preaches in the synagogues. He's preaching in the synagogues in all these cities where they have one. And he's running from town to town and his disciples are protecting him and hiding him and stinking him out at night and through baskets and everything else so that they won't get killed. And then he goes to Berea and there's a warm welcoming and then the Thessalonians heard about him and they chased him out of town from Berea. And then he goes to the next city in Athens and he's preaching there. And before long, people get mad at him and they chase him out of Athens. And then he ends up at Corinth. And so when he gets to Corinth, he's actually there for a year and a half. And he's, But he starts by preaching in the synagogue. So he has a captive audience of these Jewish so-called believers who embrace the Old Testament. And Paul's main theme is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of your Old Testament. And Scripture time and time again says, some believed, some questioned, some got very angry. You blasphemer. Get out. And they did. They chased him out of the synagogue in Corinth. But he found a friend. Somebody responded positively. This guy named Justice, and he started living in his house. And that became the base of operations for 18 months in Corinth because he couldn't go to the synagogue anymore. And here and there, little by little, trickle here, trickle there, some people were responding positively. And so the group of believers began to grow very slowly but in a positive manner. Meanwhile, he's uh, his two partners join him uh, Silas and Timothy, maybe midway while he's in Corinth, and they're encouraging Paul, and they're saying, hey Paul, here's a gift of money, you don't have to be a tent maker Monday through Friday anymore, you can be free to preach every day, and so Paul just cranked it up into fifth gear, starts preaching like a, a crazy man. And so he's getting a lot of response, good, bad, and ugly. And he's getting a, a lot of believers coming to him, but there's Open verbal hostility growing as well, an animus towards him. And Paul gets, he's starting to get a little nervous and he's thinking, I'm, I'm getting out of here because I don't want to get beat up and thrown in prison like I did in Philippi. I'm not going through that again. And just as he has that thought, the Lord Jesus Christ at night makes a guest appearance to Paul's bedroom and talks to Paul personally and says, Paul, stay here. I have many people in this city. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? I have many people in this city. And I promise you, no one's going to hurt you. Nobody's going to beat you up. Not like in Philippi. So stay here. So Paul did. Very comforting, very timely, very strategic on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ to do that for Paul. Paul ended up staying there for a year and a half and he was able to plant the church that became Corinth. Do you believe in church planting? Well, I do. GBF is a church plant. Did you know if you don't go to GBF and you go to another church, your church is a church plant? Did you know, think about this, every church that exists began as a church plant. And the Apostle Paul was the master church planter and he planted the church of Corinth. And he stayed there for a year and a half. And then he left after a year and a half to go plant more churches. And went to several cities. He was encouraging other churches that he had been at and started. And then he's in Ephesus and he stays in Ephesus for three years because things are really going well and there's great receptivity to the gospel. And he's starting to plant the church at Ephesus. And while he's at Ephesus, he keeps hearing word from Chloe's people and from uh, three members of the Corinthian church who came in and brought a message. And the news he's hearing about Corinth 200 miles away from Ephesus is not good. 
First, he hears about there are schisms in the church. There's division in the church. There's confusion in the church about something you said. And Paul keeps hearing this. And then there's another group that comes and there's more division. Oh, there's some bad, messed up theology too. And by the way, some people are undermining your authority and they're saying you're a false prophet, Paul, and you're a loser. And there are men who have risen up, pseudo-leaders, undermining what you did for a year and a half in court. The church you planted, Pastor Paul. Paul became incredibly distressed. And before he could just uproot and go, he quickly wrote a letter. After he had written an earlier one to the Corinthians. And that became 1 Corinthians. And so he wrote it from Ephesus in about AD 55, about four years after he planted this church. And this is the letter before us. And he wanted to address all these problems before he could get there. And from reading 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, we, we find out that Paul wrote as many as five letters to the Corinthians, which is more than anything he had written to any other church. And if you take 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians together, 16 chapters, 13 chapters, you've got Paul wrote more to the Corinthians than just about anybody he wrote to. Not because they were doing so well, because they were doing so bad. Problems, problems, problems. So that was the nature of the church of Corinth. Um, I read through... Acts 18 earlier, I'm not going to go there again, but just pick some highlights because I've told you most of the story is he went in there. So let's go on to uh, number six, purpose of writing. Why did Paul write 1 Corinthians? Well, if you want to divide Corinthians, you could divide it just into two big chunks. Chapter 1 through 6, Paul is addressing and admonishing them for bad reports that he was getting about them from Chloe's people and the three members of the church, Timothy, not going well, bad report. So for the first six chapters, he's just addressing these issues of division, schism. They're suing each other. I mean, there's immorality. So that's chapter 1 through 6. Then 7 through 16, go ahead to 1 Corinthians 7. A transition takes place in chapter 7. The rest of 1 Corinthians from 7 to the end of the book, he, he actually addresses specific questions that they had for him, either put in writing or that were verbally communicated to him. Well, Paul, what about this? And what about, what about virgins? And what about abstaining from sex like you talked about and you mentioned earlier? And, and what about communion? And what about spiritual gifts? And what about the, the offering that we're supposed to be putting together for the poor people in Jerusalem? And what about... So they, they had all these specific questions. And so from 7 to the rest of the book, Paul addresses those specific questions and he uses a specific literary device to kind of signal he's addressing these specific questions. And in English, some of the translations say, now concerning, now concerning, now concerning. What you asked me earlier, what you wrote about earlier, what the messenger said you asked about earlier. So it starts in chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning. And then he starts talking about singleness and marriage. And then in the middle of the chapter, now concerning whether you should get married or not. Then look at chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning gray areas, issues that are a matter of conscience. Look at chapter 11, verse 2. Now concerning, or that phrase now, very specific. Now, a new topic. Now, I need to address this. Chapter 12, now concerning spiritual gifts, which you inquired about. Chapter 15, he finishes that up in 14 and 15. Chapter 15, verse 12. Now concerning. 
this issue of the resurrection that seems to be all messed up in your congregation. How'd that happen? And then in chapter 16, verse 1, now concerning the collection, which we talked about earlier, you should have this down. So uh, that's kind of the breakdown of the outline and how Paul addresses it. Uh, the purpose for writing was to admonish their unruly living, to correct their errant theology, which is in the second half of the book, 7 through 16, and also to answer their specific questions, 7 through 16. And then finally we'll go to the last part, and that's, well, how is this relevant for us today? Some book that was written to a, some people we don't even know, and a language we don't even know, and a culture we don't even know, 2,000 years ago, seriously? How is that relevant, pertinent for us today, the book of Corinthians? Tremendously. First of all, 1 Corinthians is relevant for us because all Scripture is profitable. Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture, including 1 Corinthians, is profitable for really everybody, and especially for the Christian. As you read Scripture, no matter where it is in the Bible, it will be profitable for four things, for correction, for teaching, for training in righteousness, uh, to help us become more and more mature as Christians. It will fill out our thinking and our grid by which we assess the world and how we live. So 1 Corinthians is going to add important teaching and doctrine and theology to your brain as a Christian to really balance out your life and how you view things so you're not so myopic and immature. We need to take in all that we need to know all the Word of God or the full counsel of God. As Paul said, maybe you're naive in certain areas, whether it's... Uh, you know, spiritual gifts and the details of that or the resurrection. You haven't really studied it much and blah, blah. Studying through Corinthians is going to help us and add to uh, the big picture and package of what we need to know in terms of God's will revealed to us in Scripture. So all Scripture is profitable. And here's a trick question. Don't answer out loud. Trick question. What book is more important, the Gospel of John or 1 Corinthians? And you would say they're both equally important. Good answer, good answer. I didn't want you to say John and be embarrassed because that's the wrong answer. But uh, all Scripture is equally profitable. Um, the book is relevant because of division in the church. 1 Corinthians uh, 16 is a masterpiece of an illustration and case study on Christians being divisive with one another, Christians not getting along in the local church. And you know what? That still happens today. Every church I've ever been a part of, every church I was a member of, every church I served at, every church I was a pastor at, had division in the church among the believers in that church. That is a reality that's not going away. That's like when Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. You could also say, division you will always have with you until Jesus comes again. That's just the nature of church life. It's a reality. So we're going to see it all through Corinthians. We are going to learn lessons and principles to pull out to apply to GBF so that when we deal with conflict, we know how to deal with it because it's coming. It's here. It is here. We have division in our church among the members. God knows that. It's a bunch of sinners trying to commiserate and get along. It lasts for a while. So we got division in the church. Uh, we're going to learn from Corinthians. Problems in the church. Even So we have problems in our church, not just division problems. We've got other kinds of problems. we got morality problems. we got bad theology problems. we got... Decision-making problems. We got family problems. We got we got problems. Every church has problems. First Corinthians were the they were the experts on problems. Get this. Even as Paul was the pastor, even though Paul was the pastor, they were a messed-up church. They were a sinful and divisive church. Can you imagine? Sometimes I hear people talk about their church and their pastor. I mean, that happens all the time. 
I like my pastor. I don't like my pastor. My pastor is faithful. My pastor is lame. I left that church because I don't like the pastor, blah, blah, blah. We've all done that. We've all been there. Corinthians did the same thing. Paul, psh, Paul's our pastor. Yeah, the, the apostle guy sees visions of God, talks to Jesus personally. He's lame. We want a new pastor. I am not kidding. That was their attitude. So maybe you don't like Pastor Cliff. Doesn't matter. The next guy, you're going to say the same thing eventually. Somebody will. Because they did that to the Apostle Paul. It's inconceivable. And it comes out even more in 2 Corinthians. You're just shaking your head like, wow. How could they do that? How could they do that? Well, guess what? We do the same thing to a degree. Uh, but we can learn from that, the problems. Uh, how else can we learn from Corinthians? We here live in an immoral culture, an immoral, immoral culture, don't we? Just because it's America, it's the world, it's a fallen world, it's a sinful world. Uh, we live in the Bay Area. We have television that is just absolutely bankrupt and corrupt today. It's just disgusting. It is just horrific what's on television today. Talk about immorality. And it has become so routine and so mainstream that we are now desensitized to how graphic the immorality is. If you watch any degree of television whatsoever. I, I was horrified when it came a couple years ago, of the new program of the polygamist and his three wives. The reality show. Like, you have got to be kidding me. I, I am incensed every time I even see it advertised or see it in writing. By the way, it's doing gangbusters. Back for their third season. Yippee! And our culture becomes more and more desensitized to the the immorality. That's just one example. Bad girls and all these other things that I don't watch, by the way. Uh, it was just a title and advertisement. Thought that looks pretty bad. So uh, we can relate to Corinthians. That's kind of cool. It'll be relevant and pertinent for us, and we can again take away biblical principles. And by the way, the biggest challenge of Corinth, their biggest challenge. Think about this: was allowing themselves to be influenced by the worldly, sinful culture around them in which they lived. That is the same identical problem we have. As it leaches in or trickles in, and before you know it, we're influenced by our culture. Sometimes we don't even know it. We're blinded and desensitized by it. If you have television, stop watching television for two years, anywhere. Go back two years later, turn the television back on. You'll have a heart attack. You will be shocked. My wife and I did that once for like four years or whatever. I can't even remember. But it's just a good reminder. We can easily become desensitized. And then finally, the relevance of uh, Corinthians, I referred to it earlier, and that is the gospel applied to life. And you're going to see that Paul's routine solution for all these problems is applying the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to all of our problems. Because... The gospel, the word gospel means good news. And I want to close with this, so go ahead and look at 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll just read it and close on the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So gospel means good news. Uh, Paul defines what it is. He says in verse 1, I'm going to remind you, believer, I'm going to remind you Christians at GBF of what the gospel, about the gospel. By the way, it's the gospel that I preached to you, Paul says, when I came into Corinth. I preached it, you received it, you embraced it, you welcomed it. 
you were favorable to it. And it's also the gospel in which you stand. In other words, once they became Christians, they lived in accordance with the gospel as Christians from day to day. Verse 2. But it's also you are saved. The gospel is the only thing that saves. Your good works do not save you. It is believing in the good works of Jesus Christ, His life, His substitutionary death on the cross, His resurrection on high, His reigning as Savior and Lord, believing in Him and what He did. That is the only way to be saved. That is the good news. There is no hope in humanity. It is all in Jesus Christ by which also you are saved. And by the way, this is encouraging for the Corinthians because they were the worst of sinners. You couldn't get any more sinful than the Corinthians, corporately speaking. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is so powerful, it could save any sinner regardless of their lifestyle or their past. Isn't that amazing? There's hope for anyone in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that saved you. That is, if you hold fast to the gospel, the word that I preach to you, unless, of course, you believed in vain. It is possible to hear the gospel and say, I believe, and then to not really believe, to be self-deceived or to not understand, or years later go by and you realize, I wasn't a Christian after all. That's what he's saying. You have to believe legitimately so in order to be saved. Once you're saved, you're always saved, but it is possible to say that you've embraced the gospel when you really haven't. And so that's all preliminary, and then he defines the gospel here. For I delivered to you as of first importance. What is the most important thing about the gospel? I love it. The first word is Christ. What is the gospel? It is Christ. It is Jesus. He is the good news. He is the incarnation of good news. So it's all about Christ and what he did. Christ died sacrificially, willingly. He planned it in eternity past. That was his purpose of coming to earth. To die for what? For sinners in our place as our substitute. To be punished by God, the Father in heaven, for our sins so that we wouldn't have to be punished for our sins. A blessed, merciful, loving Savior. Christ died for sinners according to the Scriptures and that He was buried. He really died. He had to die. The penalty for sin by God was death. And so He did die. And that was confirmed in His burial. And then triumphantly and amazingly, He was raised from the dead by God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And Scripture also says that Jesus Christ raised Himself from the dead because He is God Almighty. And by raising from the dead, that showed that He was King of kings and Lord of lords and the rightful judge of every human soul and a powerful Savior that can save any sinner that comes to Him, pleads to Him, repents of their sin, recognizes it and calls out to Jesus to be their Savior as that man in Luke who said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. If you don't know Jesus Christ personally, that's the only kind of prayer you need to pray. God, be merciful to me, the sinner by virtue of Jesus Christ and what he did. And God will answer that prayer instantaneously. He will change your life forever. That is good news. So it's time to go have lunch. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for our time together, for the fellowship, for the worship with these dear people, your sheep, the saints precious body of Christ. We thank you for the treasure of your word. It is alive. It is electric. Stirred up in our souls and in our minds with your Holy Spirit. God, we look forward to being blessed in very practical ways and so many other ways through the book of Corinthians. We just pray that you would use it to change our life, to help us grow in godliness and to love you more and more. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650 630 
0009.